Welcome to the Efficient Spend Podcast, where we help marketers turn media spend into revenue. My guest today is Alvin Ding. Alvin, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm excited to chat with you. I'd love if we could just start by offering a brief background into your experience with optimizing marketing spend. Yeah. So I've been leading acquisition at a variety of different companies for the last close to a decade now. And um, some of those brands you may have heard of, uh, Upwork is one that I spent four years on, Airbnb, I was there for two years. And then since Airbnb, I've been working uh, as a consultant for a variety of different brands like Bottle Protein, Spotify, and a bunch of others. And there's been a ton of learning across industries, uh, tons of different channels that I've worked on, and hundreds of millions of dollars of budget that I've spent. So um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long journey, fun one, and uh, I'm excited to talk tactics and dive into all the different experience uh, that I've got. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited and hoping that we can make this very actionable you have a diverse range of experience working at different brands uh, within different sectors as well. Um, within what you're currently doing and and freelancing, do you have kind of an ideal client that you look to work with, or is it kind of more, hey, anybody that needs help optimizing marketing spend, I'm your guy? Yeah, there's definitely an optimal uh, size and stage client, right? Someone who's got product market fit, um, it's always easier to sell something that's very attractive than try to polish a turd, for lack of a better word. Um, but uh, one of the things that I look for typically with new clients is um, a certain amount of ad spend that is profitable because um, it's it's good to take that as an initial signal. It got some account data, account history, some learnings, and then really helps scale that, right? Take, take something that's got potential and is working and just blowing it out. That's typically the more lucrative, more um, rewarding, kind of uh, easier type of client. But the ones that I actually really like to work with are uh, the ones that are earlier on in their journey, uh, you know, seed to series A, um, haven't really started diving into performance marketing yet. And the reason why is because uh, ever since I first realized I could like see what people were typing into Google AdWords in the search terms report, I realized, oh my God, there's so much data about what's going on inside people's brains on online. And what I really like to do is dive into the personas and the psyches and understand what kinds of problems people have, because that directly turns into the messaging, the channel selection, the creative, the offering, the positioning, all of that. And that stuff is really fun for me. And you get a lot of that at smaller companies and not so much at like the gigantic megacorps, um, which is part of the reason why I actually picked and started doing this on the side or on my own. Right. Um, yeah, definitely taking a, a customer-centric approach is super helpful. And then to me, media budget is just something that amplifies what you should already be having to a certain organic sense. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Um, and do you, do you prefer kind of working freelance compared to like dedicating time to, to one, one brand? Why start the, the agency, um, and kind of go off on your own? Yeah. Um, variety, right. Is the spice of life. I, uh, really enjoy working on new problems, new personas, new products. And so 
when I left Airbnb, you know, when I was at Airbnb, I already started to kind of feel like it's more of the same week over week, kind of slow paced. What I enjoy is moving faster. And I think this is something that a lot of people experience in their career. And uh, moving faster means servicing more clients, more brands, more lines of business, different problems, different people, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, that's really the primary driver of, of uh, why I decided to spin out. Cool. Um, yeah, definitely getting exposure to, to different brands. And I think that's what is so interesting about uh, media mix optimization, the amount of testing that we can do um, in all areas and the amount of levers that we have control over to impact real business outcomes. Um, like you mentioned earlier, you've been at several well-known brands. I wanted to dive into them a little bit deeper today and hopefully glean some learnings from your experience uh, that the audience could benefit from. Starting with Upwork, which I know you spent some time at, um, could you provide a brief overview into your roles and responsibilities um, at that brand? And also maybe contextualize it for the audience in terms of the scale that they were at when, when you were uh, spending time there. Yeah, totally. So Upwork, um, when I joined, was primarily paid search. And uh, I joined as a paid search manager early on in my career. I think it was like eight years ago, nine years ago. And um, it was a lot of Bing, a lot of Google, a lot of managing those different platforms uh, simultaneously. And I think we were spending roughly around 50K a week. And we took that one channel and continued to scale it. But then we also realized okay, we've got to go like mid funnel, top of funnel and start diversifying. And so this was when Facebook was really starting to build up its ad product. And one of the things we did was start to put all the pieces in place to succeed on Facebook. And so fortunately for me, I had the opportunity to launch that channel. And then I had that opportunity, the opportunity to launch more channels like YouTube, LinkedIn. And uh, a lot of that encompassed the instrumentation, the technical stuff around measurement, pixeling, working with different teams to get all the stuff we needed for those channels, like cr creating a an efficient creative flywheel. You know, like you got to get good a good assets for those channels. Everyone knows now that good creative is what makes you succeed on Facebook. But, but, but back then, I think a lot of the best practices were still kind of like being figured out. And so, yeah, I, I, we started with single channel expanded into more channels. And by the time I was done there, Upwork's acquisition program, and by the way, this is all focused on client acquisition. So, you know, Upwork, two-sided marketplace, you have the paying businesses who need talent, and then all the freelancers that are looking for projects. We're focused on acquiring clients. And uh, by the time I was done there, we had gone from just a single channel capturing the bottom of the funnel, keywords that were like categorically uh, differentiated and nouns that were like, uh, different intent levels, um, for instance, like PHP developer versus like PHP freelancer versus PHP like help. Those are all different levels of intent in the PHP category. So blew that out, but then eventually went up to like prospecting, top of funnel stuff on Facebook to get more reach and awareness. And I think that's really how we grew over those years. Can you talk through the funnel uh, at Upwork and maybe how that differed for a user coming from a specific paid search keyword 
versus something more broad like Facebook. I would imagine that scaling into Facebook um, would be, like you said, a little bit lower intent, but also probably require a mindset shift in terms of what you're bidding and optimizing towards. Totally. Yeah. Uh, the conversion action that we were always focused on was FJP, first time job post. And um, you got a lot of those much easy, much more easily on something like paid search, right? Someone's typing higher, you know, graphic design freelancer. They come to the site, they're seeing exactly what they want. And so that user journey is, you know, nice and smooth. They've got a lot of intent. Uh, they sign up, they register, they post a job. Are you sending them to a landing page that says, you know, we have a host of these developers that you can hire? Yeah, actually. So the interesting thing, this is a great call out. Thanks for asking is we had a landing page that was uh, contextually serving up the right category of freelancer based on your keyword. And so what we, would, what we did was we had URL parameters in the final destination link that would indicate what category of freelancer that these people were looking for. And so for the design campaigns, all those keywords, all those ads would have a parameter that said, hey, this person's looking for a designer. And then that one landing page would surface dynamically the right kind of designer or, you know, designers, period. And then if you got a layer of granularity further, you know, like, is it Photoshop design? Is it graphic design? Is it like CAD design? Uh, that would all get picked up too. And so the freelancers would be surfaced appropriately and accordingly. Sure. Um, yeah, that, that's great, that, that di dynamic serving. And so, yeah, moving to, to Facebook, Ben, how, how did that change? Yeah, totally. So super big shift in intent, right? Like you said, uh, someone on Facebook might not actively be looking for a freelancer. And when they see an ad for, first of all, the way we talk to them had to be more outcome focused, right? It's like, you're an entrepreneur, you need a website done. We then would use that to kind of breadcrumb into, well, you can use a freelancer to get that done. Leading with straight up freelancer at that level of the funnel oftentimes did not work. Uh, unless we, and you, know, and you would segment, obviously in Facebook, that different ad sets by the audience type, right? So there's like the audience that's looking for some sort of outcome, doesn't know, doesn't really care for freelancers. The way we talk to them is different. There's the, audience segment that is kind of open to freelancing. So like an interest target back then in those days when we had a lot more interest targets, could have been like freelancer.com. Um, and that would be more of like a perfect complement or a perfect substitute that we could speak more immediately directly to with the freelancing message. But yeah, there's a lot more kind of convincing, handholding, nurturing, kind of benefit and education messaging on, hey, you want X done? Well, you know, freelancers can really get you there. And these are the reasons why you should use a freelancer um, and not some of these other services like Wix or WordPress or something like that. Um, and a lot of it was actually nurturing that person down the funnel. And so what we actually learned was that, you know, freelance, like Upwork is kind of like a speed dating circle in a way. Like you throw a hundred men and a hundred women into a room if you just let them do their thing, they may figure it out, they may not. But if you put some structure in place and some guardrails and like how-tos um, to facilitate the whole process, then you're going to have a lot more um, positive outcomes. And so what, one of the things that we learned was you come to Upwork, 
you might have the intent of hiring a, a freelancer, but you might not know that, unfortunately, there are lots of nefarious actors on Upwork. And you might hire someone without screening them enough. Um, one way, at least back in those days before AI ran rampant, um, to do that was to actually hop on like a video call and like confirm visually that that person is who they, who they say they are um, and that they actually know the things that they're typing into the little dialog box. That's step one, right? Vetting, making sure that the people are who they are. Step two is actually like not just sitting back and passively waiting for job applicants, but to actually go out and search and actively invite and recruit people to come to your job. And that works really well because you're leaving it less to chance. A, there's a higher likelihood that the client is going to find who they want because they've gone out and found who they want. And uh, B, they've put in some work. They've got a little skin in the game in terms of effort now, so they care a little bit more. So they're more likely to follow up and come back and open the, the emails, the email alerts from the people that they invited because they remember, oh, yeah, I went on Upwork and I invited Paul to be my podcast, whatever, you know? So that was a huge learning. And, you know, back in those days, uh, marketing channels were really the best options we had to kind of help facilitate that onboarding. And a lot of the learnings that we got from marketing, we actually used to try and influence the product team to go ahead and like build those things into the site, into the UI. And so now in 2023, the site is much better at facilitating all of those onboarding processes um, that originated from marketing. You mentioned you, you're talking a lot about the the um, job posters, right? The, the the clients, which is a smaller audience than the amount of freelancers, or maybe maybe not. But I wonder as you scaled from this more very specific job posting paid search to a more general, we can help you get this pro project that you want done um, in, in Facebook. Um, how did that inform the uh, freelancer acquisition strategy? And how did what type of feedback loop did you have between how freelancers were acquiring on the onboarding on the platform and, and the clients, right? Because you could potentially have a mismatch where, oh, we're onboarding so many web developers, but we don't have enough web developer jobs and, and vice versa. How did, how did that kind of work? Yeah. Most of my focus was actually on the client acquisition side. So, you know, at least for the time I was there, we actually didn't focus too much on freelancer acquisition. Uh, what we tried to do was make the platform uh, easier to use and a little bit more uh, sticky in terms of retaining some of the best freelancers because actually we had a a pretty a, a disintermedi disintermediation we had a disintermediation problem actually where you know find a freelancer you take them off take them off the platform and um, they would kind of just you know exit the monetization loop for us. So what we actually did was build in a couple of different features. And this wasn't my team specifically, but organizationally, we had changed the take rate for Upwork to be skewed more towards the point of value that we provided. So like the initial connection. And then as the freelancer and the client moved onwards throughout the relationship, 
uh, that rate that we would take would taper off. So I think it would start at like, don't quote me here, I think like around 15 or something percent. And then over time, it would slide down to like five and then 1%. So that would reduce the need and the incentive for people to disintermediate. And of course, initially, you want to be on the platform to ensure that, you know, payments go through, escrow happens, stuff like that. Um, but not a lot of direct new freelancer acquisition. Uh, I think some other ideas we toyed around with were around making Upwork like the LinkedIn for freelancers, where you show like your your Upwork profile, and that is something that you would show to potential clients. You really want to spruce that up and develop that over time, show all the projects you've done. And yet it was that if they became, if we became the resume for freelancers, then all freelancers would want to come and make some sort of profile but i don't think that project really uh got prioritized or really took off yeah i i i love the idea of um adjusting your pricing strategy to align with natural usage behavior and actually it's a bit counterintuitive because you essentially reduced price uh after you know they're with you for a certain amount of months or whatever um but you're actually increasing retention and hopefully increasing overall revenue, which is smart. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it tapers off for that job, but every new job with a new client, you know, starts back up at that initial rate. So really we're charging for that security and that initial connection. And then once you've built that trust, you know, we don't need to charge as much. Um, before we move on to some of the other work that you've done, were there any notable experiments or tests that you ran at Upwork, A-B tests, creative uh, tests that um, you would be able to share? Yeah, so that one I mentioned earlier around retargeting and kind of nurturing people with the best practices uh, was a huge discovery for us because you know, for a few years there, a few months there, we were just hammering the same message at the top, at the bottom, all throughout until they FJP'd. It's like, hire a freelancer, come post. Hire. Yeah, hire. But we started to experiment with like, hey, this is how you post a good job. Or come and invite some freelancers to your job uh, after they had already posted. And, you know, it's work to hire a freelancer and to manage a freelancer. Even to come up with a good job template, it, it doesn't just happen automatically. I mean, these days with AI, maybe it does. Maybe it's a lot easier. But back in those days, you had to like think about it. You had to write about it. So we created a bunch of templates from the best ones that we found on our platform and just fed those to the people in the funnel so that they could just take it and be like, okay, this is kind of what I need. Let me just plug and play and swap out some things and go ahead and just post that. So reducing friction kind of like holding their hand all throughout the funnel really increased conversion rates at each step. So like, you know, people who registered haven't posted a job yet, here's a job template. People who have posted a job but haven't hired yet, come invite some folks, uh, stuff like that. That was way better than just come back and you know hire. We provided value, we helped them, we helped educate them, that really worked. What is your perspective on uh, prospecting versus retargeting uh, mix allocation? A lot of folks will say retargeting is not a super incremental strategy, which I agree with. However, when I think about CPMs and the cost it, uh, to reach certain folks, I feel like that, that frequent messaging before they've converted specifically for retargeting 
they're already aware of you, but to me, it can help to increase conversion rate and also uh, result in higher quality customers too, if you're using the right messaging. But curious what your thoughts are on like prospecting retargeting mix. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it depends on use case or I think it's a case by case basis, right? Like if it's a pretty short buying cycle or user journey, something like a DDC product that's like 40 bucks or something. I don't think there's that much differentiation in terms of the messaging. If you've nailed your initial message uh, to really key in on in subsequent touches. Um, also, it might just not, it might just be a play where you need to show up a few more times, stay top of mind as they're considering you for a week and really mulling it over. So, you know, a frequency of two or three, not terrible. Uh, there's something like Upwork where hiring someone is like a big decision. You're where you're weighing who they should be. Uh, if you've got the mental capacity at the time to like onboard someone, um, comparison shopping with different freelancing platforms, going back to the Upwork example, uh, there's a lot of help and education and handholding that I think is worth using retargeting for. Now, of course, it's 2023, iOS 14's happened. Retargeting pools are like 10% what they used to be. Um, so that opportunity is no longer quite there. But if you've got a good CRM database, you understand who your customers are and you're pumping all of that information back into the platforms and you've got a strong match rate, then there's still potential to do it. But I think it depends on a case-by-case basis. For sure. Um... Yeah, and and some solutions I would say for folks that are struggling with the um, diminished audience as iOS. You mentioned a great one, which is just like leverage your your CRM and um, you know leverage your pixel, which is not going to be as diminished. Another thing that's worth testing is engagement style campaigns where you're building an audience off of people that have watched or engaged with a certain amount of your video. So if you're running app campaigns, you might not be able to retarget someone who's installed, but you can retarget someone who's watched, you know, 16 seconds of your video or something like that, um, which I think is, is super helpful. And even a lot of these players are creating these automated campaign types. Facebook has advantage shopping campaign. Um, I've tested this in, in, uh, kind of the the fintech space, even though it is traditionally supposed to be used for e-com, what I've noticed with Advantage Shopper is it's essentially a retargeting campaign to a certain extent. And I think what they're trying to do there is if you're an e-commerce brand, they're getting you in the funnel with an initial ad for you to click on and then engage. And then Facebook is just really smart at saying, we just got to feed impressions, feed impressions to capture that uh, attribution. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, retargeting, I mean, Yes, it's not in a way. It's totally still part of it, but you just can't split it out anymore. You don't know what's targeting or what's prospecting because these platforms have all become more opaque. For example, Google has their performance max, and I'm pretty sure a lot of that is just retargeting. And I know they've got the little toggle to go after new customers, but um, I'm sure a lot of it is still in there. And so uh, you got to do what you can to make sure you've got your dollars pointed towards the true top of funnel because you got to feed that in order for the whole thing to work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's become more opaque and it's more difficult. Yeah. And to your point, uh, for certain brands like e-commerce with a shorter buyer cycle, 
you might not necessarily need to adjust the creative that much, but uh, for folks that have a longer buying cycle, like, like B2B, um, you have these kind of dedicated retargeting campaigns with more specific segmented audiences that you're testing different messaging based on what their intent level is and where they're at in the process, um, which is cool. Awesome. Um, let's move on to Airbnb, which everyone is familiar with. You spent some time there as a global search lead. Um, just give the audience some brief context into um, what you were doing while you were at Airbnb. Yeah. So Airbnb, I joined to acquire a lot more hosts onto the platform uh, for the two years I was there before COVID struck. And, you know, Airbnb is a monster. Everyone uses it. You're aware of the platform. If, if you are going to host, you're probably just going to go direct or organic and you're going to host. Um, so our goal was really to get people who were aware of the platform but haven't quite uh, decided to move towards hosting to get them to start thinking about it. And we had a couple of play, uh, a couple of ways to get that uh, going. And then also to go out and canvas the world for new um, host personas and segments that we could acquire via paid search. And when I joined, it was mostly just English. Uh, a lot of our investment was towards the, uh, the English-speaking countries. A lot of the keywords and terms were English-speaking. And so a lot of the work was actually translating and localizing globally to all the different countries and languages. And also working with our data science teams and engineering teams to make sure that not only were we covering uh, the right keywords across the right categories in the right places, but then also bidding according to the value that we uh, would get from acquiring a new host in that specific area. And so, yeah, during my time, um, you know, it was, it was basically just me and a few other folks on the, on the host side. And we really relied on taking the workflows and the processes that, you know, we were doing as humans and kind of productizing and automating it via engineering. And so we, a lot of our work was cross-functional with our engineering teams to basically set up a system where like, you know, we're crowdsourcing ideas for new keywords. Um, say for example we're going after like real estate investors and we want to make sure that when they're buying their properties or when they're considering properties they're thinking of airbnb and they're getting ready to get their platform their properties onto our platform and so if we wanted to go after a new keyword idea like financial independence retire early or like real estate uh, cap rates or something like that we would put that seed keyword into a spreadsheet and then our system would go ahead and take that and extrapolate it across different variants of that keyword and also tangentially related concepts, score them, and then automatically build them into campaigns, into testing campaigns in our AdWords account. So in terms of scaling new concepts, new keywords, we did that in English. The winners would then get graduated into the new or the other countries, and then we would translate and kind of repeat that process. And... On the flip side, now that we have pretty good scale into new um, keyword pools and audiences, we wanted to make sure that we quickly killed the keywords that were not going to perform. And so the Airbnb funnel is kind of, it's a, it's a slow funnel on the host side, right? Like you go on, you create your listing. Uh, it's not published yet. 
at least when I was there, it was like a 52 step process to go from a raw listing to then like publishing it. Cause like, think about it. You have to like get your license uploaded. You got to take pictures. You got to write like descriptions. You have to fill out all this metadata, how many beds, how many bedrooms, all that stuff. And it was a long convoluted process that took a little while. And only after someone finished that whole process would they then become a new active listing. And then a new active listing is on the now is on the platform now, but great. It doesn't really mean anything to us until it gets booked. So then it has to wait for the other side of the market, the guests to come and book. And then upon booking, they would get their FTBL, which was the first time book listing. And that would be our recon, uh, revenue recognition event. And that would feed our LTV model to, to understand like, okay, a raw listing from a real estate keyword in the United States is worth X amount of dollars because someone booked and the nightly rate for that property type in that, that country was worth X amount. And so there was a lot of data gathering and kind of analysis and then uh, engineering work to get all those pipes connected. But we would leverage that to then understand like, okay, you want to get a new listing in Paris? You shouldn't bid that much for it because there are a ton of listings in Paris. You want to get a new listing in like Austin, Texas? Yeah, you should bid a little bit more for that because in Austin, Texas, we actually don't have that much supply and we have a lot more demand. And so kind of going back to your question before about supply and demand uh, at Upwork, we had a supply and demand team at Airbnb that would give us these predictive uh, LTV values based off the marginal uh, revenue opportunity from a new incremental listing in a new region. So like, you know, if we're super saturated in supply in one place and we're not in another place, then our bidder would then automatically know, okay, this campaign is a US campaign and we've got bid adjustments at the city level for the whole campaign. Uh, these cities are worth a lot more than these other cities. And so we would have like APIs feeding in all the bid adjustments. It was all enhanced ABC so that was possible. We never really used any automated bidding on the, on the host side. But um, yeah, that was a lot of the work. And by the time I was done there, I think we were clocking in at like plus 70% year over year raw listings. Um, I'm also a fan of the, the FIRE movement, financial independence, re retire early, Mr. Money Mustache and, and that whole crew. That, that's awesome. That sounds like a very sophisticated uh, paid search acquisition strategy. Are you able to share its scale in terms of like what budgets look like over there? Yeah. Um, it was definitely at seven figures a week on the host side. Seven figures a week on the host side. And that, that what year was that? Was that like 20? That was 2019, 2020. Yeah. We I still remember the last day I was in the office. Um, we shut down the campaigns. Everyone went home to like, you know, brace ourselves for COVID. And then that was it because, you know, I got laid off while COVID was happening. Crazy. Were you, um, were you doing any retargeting as part of that acquisition strategy? Or was it mainly just like this very sophisticated paid search strategy and basically waiting whatever that time period between initial, you know, submit and that first kind of revenue hit yeah it was on my side because i was more search focused it was primarily getting people at the top of the funnel into the funnel um we didn't do a lot of retargeting no rlsa um but there was a facebook arm to all of this uh that definitely retargeted folks but that was outside of the google 
sphere. Nothing on Google. Any any learnings from the keyword strategy that uh, that maybe like folks doing paid search can can take away? I guess really it was uh, using a lot of. It feels like a strategy that not a lot of brands can replicate unless you're at the scale of Airbnbs, right? They have a lot of categories, right? To permutate across. Right, right. Um, and enhanced CPC. So you weren't bidding on a CPA basis. Was there a reason for that? We were backing into a CPA based off of historical conversion rates. And that was what our engineering team would set as like, yeah, this is a whole thing. It was really interesting. Um, they had built a, a, an input mechanism where the marketer, myself here, would basically send a Slack message and say, all right, uh, tier, one uh, tier one campaigns, which the Slack bot would understand as a subset that we had predefined, change the target ROAS to like 250 or something like that. And then I don't know how they did this, but that would then result in them adjusting the CPCs on their back end to reflect that target ROAS. And so indirectly, we were bidding towards a ROAS goal, CPA goal, but mechanically, it was done through eCPC. And the reason for that is because uh, we wanted to have, have that fine-grained control over the all the different dimensions that impacted our values, so like the region and stuff. You, we couldn't at that time, at least, and I'm pretty sure it's still not possible to set city-specific CPAs via like total CPA or max conversion or something like that. I think the, the product now has value adjustments, um, but back in those days, we didn't have that. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a great point, too. I, I kind of talk about this, the difference between bidding and optimizing towards an event in your ad channel versus measuring it and kind of directionally optimizing towards it. And this is something that is has become more challenging with iOS 14.5 and data loss. The fact that <clears throat> a lot of sophisticated ad channels allow you to optimize towards downstream in-app events or value. But if you are at a scale in which that data is not occurring frequently enough at your budget, you need to actually bid towards an upstream event and you're still optimizing and you're looking at conversion rate and these type of things, um, but it's a little bit more predictable way to go about it. Totally. That's, that's a great call out. And that's why, you know, even though our North Star OKR that we really cared about was footballs, which is what we called FTBLs just because kinetically it was easier. Um, we always optimize towards new active listings or even in regions where we have like lower volume density, just a raw listing. And you have to be careful with that, right? Like to your point, you, it's all directional and you don't really know what you've got until the hens come home to roost and that takes time. And so there's this one time where we were like blowing out raw, raw listings and it was like super cheap and we had a feeling we should check it. And so we checked it. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot of these listings pretty much did not have a high likelihood of, get, of, of getting booked because they weren't quality listings. And so we had to quickly adjust and you know divest from those uh, types of keywords, divest from those you know regions, 
And uh, yeah, so when you're optimizing towards a top of funnel event, you got to do your homework, check the math, see what it looks like on the back end to make sure you're not just like throwing money away. For sure. Um, I know we have a, a few minutes left. Um, I want to spend a few minutes on Spotify and then also your just kind of like media mix optimization philosophy. Um, but yeah, uh, um, mind giving a high level detail into your, your role at Spotify. Yeah, actually, one last thing about Airbnb. Um, you know, if you're a platform, you have a, a mega amount of people coming to your site. And you should do marketing on all the different surfaces and touch points uh, that you can for each of those different segments. And the reason why I say this is because, you know, you go to the Airbnb homepage. Back then, it was just, hey, search for um, the dates that you want to travel for. And there wasn't any host messaging. Nowadays, we have, or they have, um, a little bit more of a bifurcation. And the reason why that's important is because we actually ran a test where, and we had to claw and fight and beg for Brian Chesky to allow us to do this because he was, you know, very, he, he's actually very close to the product. So he, um, you know, has final review on all this stuff. But we had this project called Ghost, which was a code name for guest to host. And the idea was, hey, you've already booked a place. Uh, you're already going to go travel. The incremental value of us showing you more guest messaging on that homepage is probably lower now. There's an opportunity to say, hey, you're actually going to leave your place empty. Why don't you put that apartment or whatever on Airbnb and help pay for your trip? And so we started to increase the messaging for host acquisition on the homepage. And what we got was an incremental 13% in new active listings from those audiences in our test cell without losing any guest bookings. So it was a mega win at that level of scale. It's, it's huge. And it actually was equivalent to like months of advertising spend. So if you're a platform and you're not doing those kinds of things for all the different stakeholders and users of your, of your site, you should think about doing that. Yeah, that, that is a really creative solution. Just thinking that if you're traveling, you're traveling from somewhere and you're leaving somewhere open for Airbnb and you could become a host. Yeah. And that's, that's actually the message that they're leaning into a lot now. I listened to this podcast called uh, 10% Happier by Dan Harris. And he just keeps playing this ad these days about, oh, I love Airbnb, I travel. And sometimes I wonder if I should put my Airbnb on the platform and like, I just hear it over and over again. So it definitely, it must work. Um, Cause it's been, they've been using that message forever. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really uh, interested in, in house hacking. And um, before I started dating my girlfriend, I was like, oh, I'm gonna rent out another room, it's gonna pay my mortgage, all this type of stuff. Now that uh, now I have to like go to the girlfriend and she's like, I don't want people staying in my place, whatever. Um, so maybe a conversation I have to have with her. But yeah, no, but exactly. <laughs> like the house hacker, the fire, the person that those people—they're all kind of like overlapping, right? Um, so yeah, it's 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 uh, paid search is interesting because you can explore all these different nooks and crannies of the internet and try and quickly get signals into what works and what doesn't. For sure, I, I think it's one of the places that if you're if you're thinking about paid marketing for most brands, obviously there's always outliers, but it's definitely the place to to start where you'll get the the most learnings too. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so I think maybe we can actually take Spotify on a, in an additional conversation. Cause I know we're, we're getting close uh, at time. Um, just kind of like closing out here, you know, your, your experience at these, these big brands, um, like we chatted through Airbnb, Upwork, Spotify, and now you're doing some, some freelancing as well. Um, when you think about kind of your philosophy on media mix optimization, full funnel marketing, what are your, what are your kind of thoughts there? Do you have a philosophy as it relates to kind of just optimizing media spend? Yeah, totally. Um, you can't look at anything in a silo, right? Uh, but there are specific silos that I think are easy to tap into. And this is a perfect segue from what we just discussed with paid search. I always like to think about the ice framework. What is the impact? How confident are we about that impact? And what is the level of ease to like achieve that? And so prioritizing the big stuff that's low hanging uh, is what I typically do first. And a lot of that you know, is non-brand search. You go out and you think about um, what your persona's pain points are, what they're looking for in terms of the features, benefits, what kind of competitors are out there. Competitor is not quite worth it because the CPCs are high and like the volume is low. You're not going to learn a lot, but non-brand search is great because it can validate things, right? Like if you have some sort of skincare product that's designed for eczema, is psoriasis going to sell? Like psoriasis suffers with um, those searches. Are they going to buy your product? We don't know. Test it. Um, or is it like, you know, hypoallergenic keywords or clean beauty keywords, things like that. These are all things that people are thinking about as they're going about and trying to solve their skincare problems and like typing into Reddit and like commenting in Reddit posts. So lowest hanging fruit, paid search, usually drives incremental conversions at a decent CPA. Doesn't always have the scale, but you learn a lot and you can use that to kind of augment your creative strategy on other channels. Um, paid search is typically bottom of the funnel, mid funnel, top funnel. You want to go into those paid social channels, right? TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat to a degree, depending on your audience. Pinterest, if you're going after uh, like, you know, middle of the country, uh, women who are stay-at-home moms, uh, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, those two are the big heavy hitters. And typically, I think just looking at the channel CAC and the channel CPAs and kind of making sure that it all makes sense in Google Analytics as well um, is going to give us a funnel that has some legs, but also some body. For sure. And um, one of the things that I love about paid search is that once you are operating at scale and have a, a decent strategy there, what you can do is you can see how uh, demand shifts in certain categories happen over time to then inform creative production and testing in those paid social channels and have that little bit of a feedback loop. If you have multiple products and search volume is going down on Y product, it may mean that you should consider optimizing into that other product and paid social and, and TV as well. Yes, definitely. One of my clients is a, uh, an apparel brand and, you know, swimsuits are doing hot right now because it's August, right? Summer, but um, they've got really fun holiday themed uh, suits. So if you think about like random crazy print 
suits, like blazers that are like for Christmas. That's what they, they provide as well. And so every time there's like a Christmas or Halloween, those categories obviously take off like crazy. It's like when you're driving around your strip mall and you see like spirit Halloween pop up, there's that kind of seasonality action online as well. Obviously. Cool. Okay. Uh, fi- final questions. This is the efficient spend podcast and you spent a ton of money on ads. What is the most efficient money that you've ever spent on ads and the most inefficient? Yeah. The most inefficient in my view, because I'm, you know, performance marketer, care about attribution and ROAS, care about conversions and CPs, all those things is anytime a Google rep recommends like a lift study on YouTube, like, <laughs> please give us a hundred thousand dollars to run a month in one geo. And we'll tell you if it resulted in anything. Um, have run a couple of those, uh, they've always been not super actionable or insightful. And the ROAS from those is typically pretty poor. Um, but, you know, that's not to say it doesn't work. You know, brand marketing is a thing for a reason. I just don't think the uh, performance marketing discipline has the tools and the measurement in place to really make that uh, media mix modeling thing happen. So it's, it's just hard to suss out. Uh, the most efficient spend, I had a client once that uh, built custom PC gaming rigs. And we tested into Snapchat, which was perfect because it was a perfect combination of product channel fit, right? Because Snapchat is for young people um, and also having a differentiated offering that is attractive. And so we actually had a 50X ROAS on those campaigns because the AOV on those computers was like 2K. And so if we were getting a CAC of, I don't know, like 50 bucks, um, that's, that's a huge return on investment. So that was the most efficient one for sure. We also did the same thing on Reddit. God, I love Reddit. It's such, it's such a good place for research, but also for like very targeted advertising, just hitting up specific subreddits. That stuff's always great too. Similar results there. The more specific is always the, the more efficient. And yeah, I, I have a lot to say on the whole, um, the way we're going to test your media is by you just spending more than you would normally spend in the specific geo. And then we're going to use the results to say, this is how it would go in the rest of the country. And it's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't buy that. That barrier is hard to cross too, unless you're like a really big brand. Like most startups just don't have that kind of money to willy-nilly test something, you know? So, no. Um, cool. Avin, this was, this was great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me at my site, adsbyalvin.com. And then also on LinkedIn, I write a lot. I uh, have a newsletter and I'm always sharing all the new stuff that I'm learning. Uh, AI is crazy these, these days. There's a lot of new workflows uh, that help with personal research, generating creative, getting that creative executed, um, even doing dashboarding and analysis. So I share all that stuff through my newsletter if people want to sign up. Cool. Thank you, Avin. Cool. Thanks, Paul.